Save big money and start your spring project with help from Menards. We offer a huge selection of body plants, veggies, and herbs to plant at home and grow yourself. Right now, all four and a half inch Bonnie plants are on sale through May 5th. Head to the Menards Garden Center to get your garden growing and check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Jane Fonda was famous the day she was born. Her father, Henry Fonda, was one of the biggest movie stars of all time. And her mother was a socialite, Frances Ford Seymour Brokaw. But Jane's ultimate success was not inherited. She earned it. Acting wasn't her first passion, and she sort of fell into it. Now, over 50 films later, two Academy Awards, Jane has done Broadway, she's been a best-selling author, and she was the fitness icon of the 80s. Remember the Jane Fonda workout? Well, it sold 17 million copies and is still the highest selling exercise video of all time. And she's still doing something right because at 74, she looks incredible. But Jane grew up striving for recognition and struggled with depression, intimacy issues, and eating disorders. Her mother tragically committed suicide and the father that she worshiped was emotionally disengaged. Now in what Jane calls the third act of her life, she is very open and honest about the mistakes she's made, where her real strength comes from, and how it's really best not to strive to be perfect, but to be whole. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Jane Fonda. It was December 21st, 1996. I had spent the day on horseback rounding up bison on my then husband, Ted Turner's sizable ranch in Southern New Mexico. And the day had come to an end and we, being a group of cowboys and me, got into the back of a pickup truck and lay against old tires and hay bales and to drive back to headquarters and it hit me. Today I'm 59 and in one year I'm gonna be 60. And it's gonna be the beginning of my last act, my third act. First 30 years, first act, second 30 years, second act, and then the last 30 years. Wow. I wasn't afraid of getting to the end of life, not afraid of death. What I was really scared of was getting to the end of life with a lot of regrets when it was too late to do anything about them. This was all <laughs> going through my mind as we bounced along the very rough roads as we headed back to headquarters on Ted's ranch. And by the time we got back, I had decided that I was gonna spend the next year researching myself. And by the time my 60th birthday came, I was a very different person than I was, and it's not at all what I expected. And reflecting back over my life had a lot to do with my getting to the point where I could begin to know who I was. In order to know where we're going, we have to know where we've been. And to know where we've been, we have to know who our parents were. Not who we think they were, but who they really were as freestanding individual adult people.
I knew my mother was beautiful growing up. I knew she was scared. I knew she was fragile. I knew that she was sometimes very, very up and gay. And sometimes she would be in her room with the curtains pulled for days on end. I didn't know what bipolar was. In those days, it was called manic depression, but I didn't know what it was. I just knew I wasn't safe with her, and I knew that she didn't love me. I instinctively knew that, that she couldn't really be there for me, and that my father was, that, that was the winning team. That was where safety lay. That was where approbation, confirmation lay. When I was young and little, we lived at the end of a dirt road in Brentwood, up above on the Santa Monica Mountains overlooking the Pacific Ocean, and there was a lot of land. Most of my time was spent out in the woods exploring and being brave. My role model was the Lone Ranger. I saw myself as a leader. I was brave. I was take charge. I depended on no one. I never asked for help. I never expressed need because I knew that my father didn't like it when people expressed emotional need. He just didn't know what to do with it. It was partly, I think, that was the way he was raised, the way a lot of men were raised. But he very definitely viewed it as sissy. He enlisted in the Navy, and he went overseas, and he was there for a good part of the war. During that time, I learned to swim, and I learned to read chapter books. And I was very proud of that, because my father was a big reader. And I remember, by this time, I was eight. and. I remember one afternoon he was back from the war and he would always sit in this particular chair and read. And I sat opposite him in another chair and I read. I was reading Black Beauty, I remember, and I came to a place that made me laugh. And I purposefully laughed out loud because I wanted him to notice that I was laughing and ask me what I was laughing at. And I laughed and I laughed and <laughs> he never looked up. That was when I, I began to realize that he couldn't engage. He did when I was little. I can see it in the pictures. I would look at these pictures with a, a magnifying glass, studying the expression in his face and in his eyes and in my face, and, and I knew things had been okay then, but they weren't later. He just cut off. I thought it was my fault. Later, when my dad came back from the Navy, Almost immediately, he went into a play on Broadway, the iconic role of Mr. Roberts. In the interim, he had fallen in love with, with someone, and he asked my mother for a divorce. And I, of course, knew none of this at the time. But she would disappear, and no one would tell me, of course, or my brother Peter, that she was in a mental institution. One day, she came back to the house. She'd been away in a limousine. She had a nurse with her. And uh, my brother and I were upstairs playing jacks on the floor, and uh, someone yelled up and said, you know, your mother's downstairs, and I wouldn't go down. And, um, and I never saw her again. She, she came to get a razor. I found out way later to cut her throat uh, in the institution where she was. But I didn't know that. I was told my father came, drove out from the city and sat us down, me and my brother and my grandmother, and they told us that she'd had a heart attack. And I remember getting up and going upstairs. 
and sitting on the edge of my bed, I could hear my brother crying, and I thought, what's the matter with me? I, I feel nothing, nothing. Ah, but then it occurred to me, I'm gonna get a lot of attention in school. Poor Jane, her mother died. You know, I can be the hero. <laughs> so that was the direction I, I went in. And in fact, the stiff upper lip attitude that, that I had assumed in life served me very well. And I got a lot of praise for it. Oh, isn't she something? Jane, she's so strong and brave. And you know, you would, when you're little, you adopt survival mechanisms, but then they last too long. <laughs> they last beyond their usable time and they become impediments to growth. But as I looked back on it, you know, I realized how much I needed to show my emotions and how many decades it took me to learn to not be afraid of saying how I feel and to allow my vulnerabilities to show. It was very, very hard. A year after my mother died, uh, I was in study hall and a girlfriend passed me a, a movie magazine in which it said that my mother had cut her throat. And of course, I thought if I had gone downstairs and seen her and that day that she came to the house, then she, she wouldn't have killed herself. It was my fault. So, you know, I went through life with a lot of guilt, the way kids do. It's all about me. It's all my fault. Many years later, when I got the records from the institution where my mother killed herself, it was a big packet. I remember when it arrived, and I, I started to shake. I got in bed. I was so cold, and I started reading it, and it was a lot of reports from doctors and nurses. And then suddenly, in the middle, there were about 12, 15 pages typed with little handwritten notes in the margins. And one of the most important things that I learned is that she had been sexually abused. <sighs> Everything fell into place. I wanted to take her in my arms and tell her how sorry I was, that I understood why it had been the way it was. But also, I was able to forgive myself. It had nothing to do with me. Saving money in your next project with help from Menards. Move water where you need it quickly with a Barracuda sump pump. Sump pumps keep your basement dry when big storms hit unexpectedly. Get a half-horsepower cast iron Barracuda sump pump on sale now through May 5th. Hurry into Menards and don't forget to check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Like a lot of girls, I was pretty feisty. I was a tomboy. I climbed the trees and I wrestled. And then suddenly you were supposed to have boyfriends and you had to be a certain way. You had to be popular and you had to be thin, and you had to be what they wanted you to be. That became a very difficult time in my life. Partly, I was suffering for the loss of that wonderful, strong, brave girl that I had been. I was mourning the loss of her, and so I slept a lot and didn't know what to do with myself, and I was floundering. My father 
called me frivolous and lazy. He didn't realize that I was suffering. Starving myself, anorexic, bulimic, etc. and so forth, you know, I'll be perfect. I was on this toxic quest for perfection, and it is toxic. I should have known better because I saw lots of women who weren't perfect who were beloved. One very fun story that happened to me, I must have been about 16. My father was married to an Italian woman, and she was a bit of a jet setter, and we were in the south of France. We rented a house on the Mediterranean, and all kinds of famous people would come and spend the day, you know, including Jackie Kennedy and Elsa Maxwell and all kinds of fancy people. And one day, Greta Garbo came to lunch and looked at me and said, would you like to come swimming with me? Well, first of all, none of the people that ever came there ever noticed me or looked at me or countenanced me, much less went swimming. Nobody went swimming. They were too worried about their hair or whatever. And I was like, yes, I want to go swimming with you. And she disappeared and came out in a bathrobe with one of those serious white rubber swimming caps on. And we walked down the stairs and got to the bottom and she dropped her bathrobe and she was naked and she wasn't perfect. She was an athlete. She was muscular, she was sturdy. And it made me so happy that she was just a good, healthy body. And she dove right into the cold water. I put my toe in, I was so ashamed. It took me so long to get into the water. I remember she, on the way, I was swimming out and she was coming back and we kind of met, bobbing in the water and she looked at me right in the eye and she said, do you want to be an actress? And I said, no. She said, well, you're pretty enough. And I, I think I swallowed about a ton of water. <laughs> I was so shocked. And I think I had a Cheshire grin on my face for the rest of the day. It was a, it was a great experience. And of course, my more mature, smarter part of my brain knew there were a lot of very beloved, wonderful, fabulous women in the world who weren't perfect and who were loved. But it took me a long, long time to realize we are not meant to be perfect. We're meant to be whole. When I was young, I didn't want to be an actress because my father, from my eyes, I never found joy. He, he never seemed to bring joy home when he came home from work. It was always problems. He wasn't satisfied with this or this, you know, uh, no joy. Besides, I thought I was fat <laughs> and not talented, and so it was not the direction I was going to go in, and I was a, a secretary. I was fired. I didn't know what to do, and I had to move out of my father's house. And Susan Strasberg said, why don't you start studying with my father? This was Lee Strasberg. And I thought, well, I'll give that a try. There were maybe 40, 50 people in a class in a small theater on Broadway. And I sat next to Marilyn Monroe in Lee Strasberg's classes. She and I would sit in the back of the room and she'd have no makeup on and dark glasses and a scarf around her head and looking very scared and apparently was always too scared to ever get up and do anything. And I kind of felt that way too. I was too scared to get up and do anything. And I'd been sitting around for about a month and a half in the class terrified. And finally one day I got up the first thing he would ask you to do would be a sense memory where you wouldn't pantomime, but you would, like I chose drinking a glass of orange juice. 
the feel of it in your hand, the coldness, the weight, what happens to your taste buds as it approaches your mouth, that kind of thing. So finally he told me to do it, and I did it. And I remember there were more people than usual in the class. I think they were coming to see Henry Fonda's daughter fail. And Lee said to me, you have real talent. From that moment on, everything changed. In fact, the color of the room changed. I remember when I walked out the door of the building that day, it was like New York was a different place. I owned it. The sky was a different color. Everything was different. And from that moment on, I would go to bed loving something and wake up loving something. There was a focus to my life, something that I, that I knew I adored. That approbation from Lee changed my life. When I was a little girl, my brother and I always had to take naps, and um, I never would sleep, but I would turn my fingers into our family. There would be my mother, and then a little bit taller, my father, and my half-sister, and then me and my brother. And I would cover us all with, we'd each have our own Kleenexes. And we'd carry out little scenarios. And then I would take all the Kleenexes off and I would squish them into a little ball. And then I would smooth them all out on my bed. And as I smooth them out, I would say, I'm gonna make it better. I can make it better. And I would try to make them just the way they were before with no wrinkles. I can make it better. And it became kind of a mantra in my life. I'll be the one that can make it better. But then there was a real need to make things better. It was 1968. What was going on in the world was the Vietnam War. Globally, a great time of tumult and chaos. I was married to a Frenchman. I was living in France. I was living in the periphery of all this. But then I began to meet American soldiers who were in Paris, resistors. I became friends with some of them, and it was these soldiers who really taught me what was happening in Vietnam. Suddenly, my eyes began to look outward, and I don't want anymore to be some American version of Bridget Bardot. I had just finished making Barbarella. I was living a life that I'd really doesn't seem to have any meaning for me. I was watching television. I was watching these massive demonstrations in my own country, people risking their lives. Why aren't I there? Why aren't I a part of that? I can't stay here in France listening to my country being criticized. I, I've got to go home. And I did. And I went to military bases, and I, I spoke to all branches of the military, pilots, sailors, army guys, Marines, their wives in depth for three years. I immersed myself in the lives of soldiers and in the people who were trying to help them. The most controversial part of my anti-war activism was, was when I went to Hanoi. I arrived in Hanoi with bombs dropping. One day we were driving back to Hanoi from having visited a city in the southern part of North Vietnam. And there were these manholes that they dug all along the sides of almost all the roads in North Vietnam, just enough to fit one person. Then you would get down in it and pull this straw cover over the top to prevent shrapnel from, from hitting you. The car suddenly stopped. 
and I was told to get out. And they said, run and, and, and get into one of these holes. And suddenly from behind me, someone grabbed my arm. And I could see it was a young Vietnamese girl. And she had this belt over her shoulder carrying school books. And she dropped the school books, took the cover off this manhole, and pushed me into it and got in with me. Now, these are built for one person. And even though both of us were quite small, we were crushed together. I could feel her breath on my cheek. I could feel her eyelashes on my cheek. And I could feel the ground shaking from bombs. And I remember thinking, this, this is not, this can't be happening. This is, I'm going to wake up. This has got to be a dream. Eventually, the shaking of the ground stopped, and you could hear the planes disappear, and I could hear the voice of the interpreter telling us to get out, and the, the girl got out, and I started to cry, and she was young. I said to the interpreter, please tell her, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she said through the interpreter, don't be sorry. We know why we're fighting. It's your soldiers who don't know why you're fighting. Unless you were there during the war, you would not believe that we, the greatest military might on earth, were fighting a people who were fishermen and peasants and farmers, and they didn't have the technology we had. They had thousands of years of experience of fighting for their freedom, and they knew how to do it. And we didn't know who they were. And so one of the big lessons was, know thine enemy. Literally and figuratively, you have to know what it is you're fighting. Be it age, be it perfection, be it war, whatever. You've got to understand what you're dealing with. In the early 1970s, Jane became known more for her outspoken views on Vietnam than for her acting. She sparked enormous controversy in 1972 when she traveled to Hanoi to see the war firsthand. Years after that infamous trip, Jane took her own advice of knowing thine enemy and decided to meet with some of her fiercest critics. I made one unforgivable mistake when I was in North Vietnam, and I will go to my grave with this. On my last day, I was taken to a military site. It's not something I wanted to do. I was an emotional wreck by now. I don't know if I was set up or not. I was an, an adult. I take responsibility for my actions. There was this little ceremony. These soldiers sang a song. I sang a song in a feeble Vietnamese. Everyone was laughing. I was led to a gun site and I sat down. And I was laughing and clapping and there were pictures taken. And as I walked away, I suddenly thought, oh my gosh, this is gonna look like I was shooting. I mean, there were no planes, the gun was not operable. It didn't matter. This is an image that belied everything that I was. I was in Vietnam. I was against the war because of what I had learned from soldiers. I'd spent three years working with active duty servicemen. And I understand the anger about that. And by the way, I have apologized for that 
photograph over and over and over again, privately and publicly. And I'm doing it again now. Years later, when I was in Waterbury, Connecticut, I was making a film, Stanley and Iris. I had my PR person there. I asked him to try to organize a meeting of Vietnam veterans. I said, I just met Vietnam veterans in the basement of a church, and there were about 40 of them that came. And I, I came in alone, and I suggested that we go around in a circle and we all tell our stories. And we did. Some of them were, I mean, there was, you know, they had hats that said traitor. There was one who later said to me, I came with, he was, it was the De Delta Death Squad and he had a, an ace of spades and that was the card that would be thrown when he was gonna kill someone and he brought it with him and he was intending to challenge me and throw it at my feet. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of hostility, a lot of tears from all of us. It lasted many hours. When it was over, my PR person came in and said, I don't know who told the press. It wasn't me. It certainly wasn't me. But there are some press people outside. What do you want to do? And I said to the men, what do you want to do? I'll do whatever you want. We can all go out the back, whatever. And they said, let them in. It's not what the press expected. I don't mean that every single man there suddenly <laughs> was fond of Fonda, but there was a lot of healing, a lot of healing. The guy with the ace of spades ended up tearing it up and throwing it in the trash, and he's remained my friend, and we've talked a lot about this event. And what I learned, we have to listen to each other, even when we don't agree, even when we think we hate each other. We have to listen to each other's narratives, not interrupt defensively, or with hostility, but really try to open our hearts and listen with empathy. I learned so much from that meeting. It was a very difficult thing to do, and it was the, one of the best things that I, ever, that I ever did in my life. Look what scares you in the face and try to understand it. Empathy, I have learned, is revolutionary. One of my greatest film experiences was making On Golden Pond with my father and Katherine Hepburn. It was a film that I produced. I knew my father was dying. I wanted to do a movie with him before he died. In the movie, the character that I play, Chelsea, does a backflip. I wasn't intending to do the backflip myself. I'm terrified of cold water. I'm terrified of going over backwards. I didn't think I could do it. But Katherine Hepburn challenged me, and I remembered the flip she did in Philadelphia's story, and I thought, I'm going to have to do this. And so I spent a lot of time, painful time, learning to do the backflip. And every day when I wasn't needed on the set, I would try to go around and end up hurting myself. I was covered with bruises, and finally one day I actually did it. And as I came crawling out of the water, out of the bushes comes Katherine Hepburn. <laughs> She'd been hiding in the bushes watching me. And she came over to me and she said in that shaky voice, how do you feel? And I said, I feel terrific. She said, you've taught me to respect you, Jane. She said, you conquered your fears. She said, we have to teach our children that. You have to face your fears or else you'll get soggy. I'll never forget that. My way of doing things that's become very deliberate now is when I'm afraid of something, I embrace it.
I become its best friend. I know everything I can about it. And my fear dissipates. You know, it's like Rumpelstiltskin. When you call the name out, it vanishes. The fear vanishes. Breaking the wall of silence. That's what happens when you face your fears. And I've done that a lot in my life. And Catherine Hepburn put a, put a phrase to it. Sitting by my father's bedside as he was dying, he wouldn't say anything. Of course, I wished he would. I wanted him to tell me that he loved me, and I, I wanted to ask him questions. And I knelt at his feet and looked up at him. And I, I said, I told him, I told him that I, I loved him, and I knew he'd done the best that he could. I'd only seen my father cry one other time. And that, that was when Roosevelt died. But he wept, and he wept, and I knew that he was uncomfortable having me watch him weep, and so I left. And my stepmother came home, and she said he was still weeping when she came back. I don't know what it meant for him, but I, I do know that he is with me. I don't know about afterlife and things like that. I do know it's kind of what he says in the end of, in his great speech at the end of Grapes of Wrath. We are, after all, whether we like to know this or not, we're made of molecules that come from the stars. We are all a part of everything. We are energy. And I feel his energy. I feel him with me. And once I learned who my mother really was, I feel her with me too. How lucky can a person be? I feel so lucky. The way I can best describe how I lived my life from the end of tomboyism and the beginning of adolescence until I was about 62 years old, it's a long time, was that I moved out of myself and took up residence next door, leaving what I tried to make the perfect shell. And I remember when I was 62 and I had done something that was very, 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 very painful and difficult. I had left Ted Turner, my third husband, who I loved very, very much. But I knew I would die married, rich, but not whole. Ted had 23 huge properties and a private plane that slept eight, and I would buy clothes in bulk so that there'd always be something in all the places that we would constantly be moving to. And I moved into the guest room in my daughter's home. It was a small room with no closet, me and my golden retriever, and it was perfect. I was so raw and so sad, and at the same time, I could feel myself moving back into myself. I knew I knew that hard and painful as this was, that I wasn't scared of being alone. I wasn't scared for the first time in my life to not be with a man. And that whatever lay in front of me, I would be able to do it as a whole person. It was a seminal moment for me. I interviewed Jane soon after her split with Ted Turner for the second issue of O Magazine. That was over 10 years ago. I visited her in that itty bitty room in her daughter's house. I remember it as soon as I stepped through the door feeling the presence, not of a distraught person, but of a woman who was in charge, 
of herself, who seemed to be at peace with herself. In fact, she says that she made the decision to write her memoirs right there in the middle of our interview. Jane Fonda says that her life is her legacy. And I just think it's such a gift that she's been willing to put it all out there, all of it. For anybody who believes that it's too late to begin again or too late to heal all of the broken places that are keeping you stuck, Jane Fonda says she is now finally whole. I've done a lot of things in my life. Uh, there's a lot of parts to my life. I have thought very deliberately and intentionally a lot about my life and why certain things happen and what they mean and so forth. I learned that the goal is to be whole, to be of a piece, to reside inside your skin. I don't want to die tomorrow, but if I do, I go out happy because I've worked hard at making the most of what I've been given. My best legacy is my life. And the lesson is, it's never too late. Everything came late to me. My voice, my becoming whole, my learning intimacy, all those things happened after I turned 60. And I think it's a very hopeful lesson. It is never too late. Never give up. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.